So we'll move into Daniel 6. Daniel 6, we're halfway there. Tonight's the halfway point. Well, I think we're, yeah, I don't know how many weeks this is supposed to go, but we're halfway through the book. Um, so we're, we're finishing up the historical narrative portion of Daniel. Up to this point, everything has just been story format. And when we begin in chapter 7 through the end, it becomes uh, prophetic. It's more prophetic material. So there's a little bit different tone to the end of the book, but we wrap up the narrative with probably, I, I don't know how you could quantify like what stories in Daniel are more famous than other stories in Daniel, but probably the most famous story in Daniel, the lion's den. And uh, so we'll pick it up there. And uh, kind of a fun thing tonight, I, I uh, lost my Bible, so I'm operating from a pew Bible, so it happens, you know, life happens, you lose things. Um, I mean, I have multiple copies, but I, I was hoping I would find the one I normally use here somewhere tonight, and I did not, so here we are. Um, but uh, we'll start off with our outline, kind of a map of where we're going Uh, And again, I think I said this last week, uh, if you're following along in an English translation, you might have breaks or titles in different locations. Uh, The reason why I've got those three main divisions is, again, there are markers in the Hebrew Bible where they would consider divisions. And uh, pretty much all of your Bibles would agree with this, but there's one little caveat that in the Hebrew Bible, they actually take uh, verse 31 of chapter 5, and they actually call that verse 1 of chapter 6. And so I thought, rather than last week, this week would be the time to tell you that. So if you're looking at a Hebrew Bible, chapter 6, verse 1 is actually chapter 5, verse 31 from your English one, uh, which is interesting why they might do that. It's probably because of the mention of Darius in verse 31, and he's going to be a main character as we move through chapter 6. So that's probably why they did that. Again, the uh, verse numbers and chapter divisions were not original. And so, uh, you know, what we have is a a great guess sometimes. It's a good start, but it's not always... Those aren't divinely inspired. So we have some leeway to kind of move those divisions around. Uh, So, um, would someone... Wait, I think... Hold on. Ha-ha! Give you a little bit of background before we start into the text. So we said this last week, uh, historical records indicate the fall of Babylon to the Medes and Persians happened on October 12th, 539, which was a week ago, uh, October 12th. And so that kind of gives you a time frame of where we're talking here. Uh, It's around 538 where, uh, or Ezra says, the first year of Cyrus that um, there's a decree to send some of the Jewish people back to the land. And so we're starting to get into this discussion of when things are ending in exile. Um, The little bullet there, some think they, and when I say they, we're talking about Cyrus or Darius. Some people think that they are two separate people. And some people think it's the same guy. And so when we get to the the first section, we're going to have a little discussion on that. Brief his, historical notes, because uh, I don't, I don't want to focus most of our time on that, but that can be a confusing puzzle piece to think through, so I'm going to give you some options. And then just as a reminder where we are in Daniel's life, Daniel is certainly in his 80s at this point. He's no longer a young boy, 
and he could be at this point uh, pushing close to 90. So, um, again, if you want to really dive into the numbers of that, let me know. I'll give you a couple book recommendations. You can go hog wild on that. So, um, now, does someone want to read Daniel 6, 1 through 5? Might have to wait the points a little bit. This section's a little bit bigger than the other ones. But don't let that scare you. You can still defeat them. Dan's got it. Okay, there we go. Dan, chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. All right, so first five verses here. As I said earlier, we're going to ask this question, who is Darius or Darius, depending on who you listen to or decide to pronounce that? Uh, So there's kind of, like I said earlier, two, probably one of these is the correct answer for us. Uh, Cyrus and Darius or Darius could be the same person. And this is where you get into the historical records. It's hard to find guys with the right names at the right times. And so some people take this word, Darius or Darius, to be a title, like emperor. And the reason that they would do that is there's actually a string of people that would have a very similar title or name, and they would be kind of throwing out the idea that we don't have this one guy in all of these different places. We actually have kings of the Medo-Persian Empire, and this is a title given to them. And in that sense, when you would get to the end of the book, so just if you want to look at verse 28 really quickly, we have both of these names mentioned together, how you would read that if you were taking the view that they're the same person. That verse would then read, and this is... uh, it's uh, an option with the language. It's, it's, so if you looked at the original language, you could read it this way. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius, even in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So it's not like a parallel statement like this guy and this guy. It's like a, this guy who is also this guy. And that is an option grammatically. There's another view that uh, answers this, saying that there's another foreign king of the time, or we see a name that comes up in documents, and uh, good luck pronouncing his name. It's like Gabaru or something like that. And uh, they see that title coming up often in this time frame, so like the 538 era. And they would postulate that Darius, well, they don't see that name specifically in line with this time frame. They would say it's this other king, Uh, both are okay options. If you read good commentaries, they're going to take either view. Uh, For example, John MacArthur takes the first view, that it's the same guy. Um, If that is something that you are just like, man, that really intrigues me, you let me know, and I'll give you some more resources. But that's probably all we want to say about it now. Um, Those are two good options of who this is. And uh, so, yeah, if you have questions, let me know. We'll, We'll dive deeper into that. Next question here, or next point. Uh, Daniel becomes one of these high officials, and that's where the main title comes in, Daniel's promotion here. Uh, So when Darius, or Gaburu, or Cyrus, or whoever you want to call him, when he takes over, we'll go with Darius, because that's what verse 1 says. What does he do? He sets up a bunch of people, and this would probably lend itself to mean It's not probably like a provincial ruler. This probably is like the ruler of the Medes and Persians. 
because he has authority to set up a bunch of people. So 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And then over the 120 satraps, he elects three governors, and uh, Daniel is one of them. So you start thinking through the ranking system. Uh, Daniel is, there's a, go to the next point here. Or no, it's the same point. Uh, Daniel is one of these. Uh, you could read that to mean like first. So he's the first of the three or that he was the first of the three chosen, not necessarily rank, but chronological order. Either way, you've got 120 rulers and then over top of those 120, you've got three people and Daniel is one of them. We have a question. A high official. <laughs> um, there's a lot of these words. Like, if you remember back in chapter 3, a lot of titles. And, uh, you know, if you ever want to see them in the original, you just let me know. I'll bring my Hebrew Bible. And, uh, but it's, it's like these long Aramaic terms and uh, very similar to the musical instruments in chapter, chapter 3. We're not 100% sure on all of them what they exactly mean, but we've got really good guesses. Um, but so it's it's definitely like a, a political leader ruler. I like the, I went with the high official today, um, or I guess they'd be officials, and then Daniel would be like the highest official. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm not sure what would be a good equivalent of it. I mean, if you think we've got two senators in each state, right? And you so you got about a hundred there, somewhere in that vernacular, maybe. Uh, the difference being they're all in one little province happening here. So something like a representative or a senator, very akin to that, but their job description is probably a little bit different than our dudes today. But good question. Um, so uh, we'll keep moving here. Uh, well, okay, uh, so we see there, verse 2, so Daniel is one over the 120. He's one of these three, and whether or not, he was initially chosen to be the top dog. Uh, you can see what happens. Um, verse 3, This Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So this makes sense. Daniel's been around Babylon for a while now. Babylon gets conquered. He's got all of the historical record. He's got all of this wisdom from God. And it doesn't take long for Darius to notice this. And so, really, he looks at Daniel, and he considers just, like, letting him run the whole show. And uh, from what we know of Daniel, his character, what God has done through him, that shouldn't surprise us. But he's considering that, uh, which is pretty, pretty unique. So he's kind of the top dog. Uh, and... Let her see, you'll see again, this is kind of a repetition from previous stories, that Daniel has a, an excellent spirit. Uh, he has a great attitude. And uh, I think this story, more than some of the other ones, is going to highlight that, uh, especially when you consider how long he's been faithful. Uh, he's been taken from home to Babylon, and then now, in exile, he has a new king. And it'd be a really great opportunity to get cranky. And he is even better. He's still the guy that you know him to be. And so we're going to come back around to that later. Uh, but 
On the heels of that, here's the king wanting to exalt Daniel and let him run the whole show, and he does have some opposition. So verse 5, these men, so probably looking at the 120, somewhere in that realm, these men say, uh, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. They're trying to find a way to get him in trouble. And they know that he's so virtuous that the only way that they would trap him is if they set up a, a circumstance where you'd have to choose between honoring the king and honoring his God. And they knew that in that circumstance, he's going to honor his God. So the only way we're going to find something against him is going to be concerning the law of his God. He will not disobey the law of his God. That's the only way we're going to get him, which is a really interesting observation to make. <laughs> I, think, I think people that know me could maybe think of a couple other ways to trip me up, like I'm very competitive, uh, you know, like you could just start reminding me about how last week's Hawkeye game went, and I could be quickly riled up, and, which we had a buy last week, which was, you know, we're good. But um, for Daniel, there's only one option to get him in trouble. We have to put him in a position where he's going to do what, he, what is right. He's going to obey God and will trap him through his obedience and faithfulness to God. Uh, and so even their observation of how to harm Daniel is a great uh, recommendation of his character. So that's kind of the first point there. We're just kind of setting the story. So Daniel is one of three in charge of everyone. He's a high official in the kingdom, and he's got some opposition that wants to cause some problems for him. So the conflict of this narrative is how they do that. So we'll move to chapter 6, 6 through 10. Would somebody like to read that? Yeah, Raleigh, thank you. That's one question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So were these guys in verse 5, are they Democrats? Or <laughs> Absolutely they were, yes. <laughs> you know, I think in a homiletics course in college, I was definitively told, just don't mention politics. But when you get here, it's like, what are you going to do, you know? But no, that's a good question. They were just trying to bring them down Probably both. Um, I I did some reading of how some other people kind of deal with this narrative. And a very common trend is like trying to talk about like envy. It's like when you see someone else prospering, what's your first reaction? And we'd all love to say like, oh, yeah, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice. But sometimes we don't react that way. Um, Actually, there's a really fascinating, if you um, go to Grace to You, you can listen to John MacArthur talk about this. He mentions a pastor in, uh, I think it's London, but it's the same time as uh, Spurgeon is preaching, like a real old pastor who's watching Spurgeon come on the scene, and he reflects of like, you know, I really hated him. (laughs) And he had to like pray and really change his heart towards this young, popular preacher, and he kind of used that as an illustration here. Um, what we would know of these guys is that they're definitely not, or most likely not, believers. So there's probably some element of just persecution where they don't like Daniel and his God. But I'm sure mixed into that ball in their heart is they want prominence too. Um, so all of the above would probably be 
the answer. Next section here. So, pretty easy plan uh, that they hatch here. They're going to try and convince the king to create a rule where no one else, no one can petition anyone else than him. And what could be easily missed here is it's not just like a human-to-human petition. So why would it be wrong for Daniel to speak to his God when he's not supposed to make, he's only supposed to make petitions to the king? This is actually a very common thing that would happen in these other kingdoms is that they would exalt people to be like the gods. Uh, This is common in uh, Greek culture, Roman culture, a lot of these pagan kingdoms is that they would consider the human ruler to be deity. And so this is actually a really genius plan. They're playing to the ego of this king, to Darius. It's like, you're the god for 30 days. You're the only god for 30 days, which is really interesting because they certainly would not have been monotheistic. But here they're, 30 days, you're the only god. No one's praying to any other god. No one's worshiping any other god. It's only you. But I think that adds a little flavor to it. It's not like you can't ask anyone for anything. You've got to ask him for the things you want. It's, this is a, a statement of who you can worship, and it's actually deifying Darius as the king, uh, which is, is not uncommon in some of these kingdoms. You know, and if, if I was the ruler and all of my officials came to me and it's like, you get to be God for 30 days, I'd be like, that sounds like a sweet deal, right? Uh, well, hopefully not as a believer, but, you know, he's off the hook. Uh, ignorance is bliss, I guess, for Darius. But he agrees to it. He agrees to it. Uh, that brings up this point. They, they mention this a couple of times. They mention this according to the, the law of the Medes and Persians that they can't overturn things. And the, the reason why that is mentioned is that they did have this rule, and it was intended to not, uh, to not allow flippant laws. So, like, to create a law meant it was there for good. So that would keep you from making really silly laws, which is kind of ironic because it didn't help here. But that was true, that once they passed something, once it became law, it wasn't, you couldn't just overturn it. And that's kind of, again, setting the stage for what is about to happen where the king really wants to undo what he's done. Uh, but that, that is what, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, that idea they're getting at is they're trying to avoid silly laws. Uh, they cannot just take them away once it's done. There's no, like, a, a veto of what he has just done. He can't just rip the paper up. Uh, it's a serious thing that's happening here. And the king goes through with it. Uh, I think he's pretty smitten with himself and uh, willing to be God for 30 days. Uh, but I think what is highlighted in this section is verse 10. And uh, probably in your English translations, 10 is put to a second paragraph. It's done here. And uh, in the Hebrew Bible, they put a break after verse 10. So I think they want you to see juxtaposed with the law is Daniel's action. It's not a separate section of the story. It's the same section. So they come, king, establish a decree, sign into writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians. No one can worship anyone else other than you for 30 days. 
Therefore the king signed the written decree, and when Daniel knew, the writing was signed. So it's, it's just a simple flow, right, from the signing of the paper. And when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in the upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. What you have here in the narrative is is a very specific construction at the beginning of the verse. If you just kind of glance down through the beginnings of these verses, you're going to see similar words used over and over and over. Now, then, now, then. You see that repetition? That's actually the same word pretty much every time. Well over, the majority of these verses in this chapter begin with that word. It's like eden is, the, is how you'd pronounce it, but it's now or then. Like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And we talked about that earlier, that that is a common way a Hebrew story is told. They're just giving you a skeleton of details. But then they'll slow down at times, and they'll give you dialogue, or there are sometimes specific grammatical constructions to highlight a change in the flow of the story. So if you follow it, starting in verse 6, pretty much each verse is, now this happened, now this happened, then this happened, then this happened. If you read verse 10 literally, so just follow it with like starting in verse, uh, verse 8. Then the king, verse 9, therefore the king, and verse 10 would read, but Daniel. That's the literal beginning of verse 10. It's called a disjunctive. It's a contrast meant to catch your attention. It's a storyteller's clue that he wants you to focus on verse 10. And what is highlighted in verse 10, it's not up on the screen yet, Daniel's faithfulness. You see that he does not stop doing what he's always done. Uh, This idea of pointing towards Jerusalem and praying. It's, it's not started with Daniel. It's common or rich heritage in Judaism of doing things like this three times a day, praying. It could be traced back to someone like David. Uh, when he's up in his upper room, he's probably up there because it's kind of warm and it's probably like the windows open, the breeze coming through. But they know this is what Daniel does every day. Morning, noon, evening. He's going to pray facing the same direction, and he's going to pray to his God in Jerusalem. And these guys knew he would do it. That's why they built this decree a very specific way. And as soon as Daniel does it, they're ready to catch him. But what is highlighted here in verse 10 is that Daniel does what he's always done. And you just think about how long he's been here probably 60, going on 70 years. And everybody knows what Daniel's going to do. You know, they don't have phones with like push notifications, but imagine he's up there and he gets a little ding on his phone. New law, you can't pray. Turns his phone off and he points to Jerusalem and he gets down on his knees and he's faithful to his God. And I think the beginning of verse 10 was designed that but Daniel, um, which depending on your English translation might not say it exactly that way, but that's what's there. 
The author wants you to focus on that. And, it, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit. So uh, then the last big chunk of the story, textually, is the whole rest of it. Uh, well, that doesn't look right, 11 through 8. It's supposed to probably be 18. Uh, but really, 11 through 28 is one big textual section. And we're going to break that down into two chunks, uh, 11 through 18 and 19 through 28. I think I saw a hand over here. Yeah. Um, and I think, honestly, the, the people trying to catch him, I don't think they really care about the theology of it at this point. I think they just really want to see Daniel kind of get what's his. You know, they're upset with him. And, uh, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard to really kind of spell out their motives, but they really don't like Daniel. We know that for sure. So um, I don't know if they're particularly concerned with uh, what he's doing, the praying. But uh, we, could, we could launch a new discussion here of like, uh, you know, when our government, you know, tries or has attempted to restrict our religious freedoms, what do we do? We're not going to do that. We're going to keep moving. <laughs> so um, does someone want to read verses 11 through 18, not 11 through 8? That would pose an interesting problem. 11 through 18. Yeah, Amy, thank you. Awesome, thank you. So, five things here. So, the plan works perfectly. The guys who set the trap were waiting for him. They caught him. They go to the king. It's pretty standard storytelling. You know, like, hey, he did it. What are you going to do? What's interesting, if you noted it, depending on the translation you have, are you reading ESV? Yep. And if you're reading, like, uh, I knew that. Uh, If you're reading, like, New King James, like I have the New King James Pew Bible, There's actually a little phrase there in the New King James or other translations that's not in the ESV, and it's in your notes, that Darius is upset with himself. If you don't see that, I'll read the New King James, uh, verse 11. Man, these numbers are tiny. Then these men assembled and found Daniel. Nope. What verse is that? 14. Thank you. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. And that is there. And uh, it's, it's interesting that he's not blaming anyone. He's, he's realizing that he made a mistake, like that he'd been fooled, which I think is interesting. He's not trying to cast blame on anyone else. He's not blaming the rulers. You know, he's like, oh, man, I, I did this. And I do think a part of this comes in, uh, he, he has a relationship with Daniel. And he, I think he really likes Daniel. I think he loves him. And he realizes that, his mistake is going to cost someone their life. And so he tries to change it, which is number two. Darius attempts to rescue Daniel. Um, You know, you could think about uh, how the day might go here. Um, You know, if they sign the decree in the morning and they catch Daniel at lunch, you know, this is probably an afternoon, evening type of a scramble, like, let's fix this. And uh, then you know that they throw him in, and then it's the next morning is where the next scene happens. So this is probably an evening where he's trying to figure out how to fix this, but what do we already know? They don't make flippant laws. He can't undo it. I think there's a really interesting parallel here that connects to what we've already learned in previous chapters. Darius is the ruler, He's in control, right? And he's upset with himself because he's done something that he can't undo. 
and there's nothing that can be changed. And he can't rescue him. He tries to rescue him, and he can't. And I think that's a really interesting parallel to what God is going to do. And Darius doesn't understand this yet, but he's trying as hard as he can to save Daniel. He thinks he's in control, trying to fix it, and he he can't. I think he's really, he's disturbed by this, and I think his actions kind of bear that out. Uh, So, number three, ultimately nothing can be done. They throw him into the lion's den. Um, And so, Daniel's thrown in. Uh, I think what's really interesting at the end of this uh, is how the scenes work. It's actually a really good story. So, like, if you you trace what's happening, they throw Daniel in, and then, well, we roll the stone, and then he goes back to the palace. Like, if you're watching that movie, that's not what you want, right? It's like, they throw Daniel in, you're like, what's going to happen? And that's not what the storyteller does. Like, he throws him in, and you don't see anything. It's actually really good storytelling, because you're all like, what's going to happen? Now, I know you've heard this before, probably, uh, you know, I got saved later in life, and so when I was like at VBS with the little kids, we're telling this story. I had never heard these things before. I'm like, I don't know. Like, there was one time they're like, Charlie, why don't you sing the the Wee Little Zacchaeus song? I'm like, I don't know who Wee Little Zacchaeus is. Um, but you know, I'm assuming you all know what happens here. But the storyteller's trying to kind of gain your suspense at this point. <gasps> Nothing can be done. Nothing can be changed. He's in there, stone rolled up, signed. What's going to happen? And then Darius goes back and uh, tries to sleep the night away, and it's, it's not going to go well. Um, really quickly, just look at verse 16 again. What does the king say to Daniel? Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. It's just interesting to think through, like, where does Darius get this information? He spends all night, all afternoon, trying to fix the problem, can't do anything, and then finally it's like, throw you in, your God will deliver you. You know, why didn't he start with that? You know, like, it's, it's just interesting that that's what he says. Um, and we're going to come back to that in a little bit, too. But just note that. I think that's a significant idea there. And we'll move on to the last section here, 19 to 28. Anyone want to read the last section for us? I'm actually not keeping track. One, two, it's a tie. So this is, this is for the win right here. Yep, okay, here you go. You, it was right there for your grasp. You had it. 19 to 28, go ahead. Awesome, thank you. All right, let's wrap this up. So verse 20 is... Uh, a verse to look at again. And you'll note that that is a repetition of an idea that we've seen before. Who is the God who is able to deliver you from my hands? Was Nebuchadnezzar's words back in chapter 3. And this idea of is God able, is your God able, has come up before. And here we are with another king, and he's asking the same question. Is your God able? Was your God able to deliver you? And what's interesting is the way Daniel responds to that is not like, yep, I'm good. What does he say? Oh, king, 
live forever. Like, a sign of reverence and respect. It's not a sarcastic remark, not any attitude other than a really good attitude. Like, you're, you're literally sitting next to a bunch of lions that could kill you. You've been there all night. And the king's like, was your God able to deliver you? I'd be like, yes, get me out of here. That's not what he says. It's like he, he's respectful and honors the king. And then what does he say? My God sent his angel, shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him. And also, king, I've done no wrong before you. And uh, just a testimony. I don't think he's being boastful. He's saying, God delivered me because he found me blameless. I didn't do anything against God's law, and I didn't do anything to harm you. Um, so again, it's a good testimony of, of Daniel's character here, uh, which is the next point here. Daniel's blameless, and he trusted God. That's an interesting word for trust there. Um, I'm actually... This is the problem when you don't have your own Bible. You don't catch words the same way. Uh, someone help me out. Where does it say that Daniel trusted God? It's got to be in like 21 and 20. End of 23? Thank you. He believed. There we go. That's the word. That's probably why I wasn't finding trust. It's a different word. Uh, that word there is, the root of it is like to be faithful. And so he like was faithful to God as the object. Um, but to trust it. Um, and so he, he trusts, he believes in God. Um, and he's found blameless, God delivers him. What I think is really interesting about this section as we close the story is you get a lot of dialogue from the king as he makes this decree. And we, we've seen these before. We saw Nebuchadnezzar do something like this. But here's a first-person account, a first-person decree from Darius about Daniel's God. And uh, it's, just, it's just amazing. Uh, verse 25, King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Just think about this, you know. So a decree just went out earlier in the chapter too, right? You're not supposed to worship anyone else but me for 30 days. And then presumably, if you follow the chronology, it's probably a day or two later. Here's another one. Peace. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear the God of Daniel. That's a pretty, pretty big about face right there. It's like, don't worry about the 30 days thing. Just scrap that. You need to fear Daniel's God. And what does he say about God? And I think this gets us into, well, it's coming in a couple of slides, but anyway. Uh, what does he say about God? He is the living God, steadfast forever. His kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? Uh, when we get into chapter 7, we start hearing these prophecies of kingdoms, we're going to hear a lot about God's enduring kingdom. And uh, certainly as Christians with a, a, 
You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You can kind of see things a little clearer of what has happened in Christ. And, you know, not all of it's hindsight, but someday. But I, you read about God's kingdom and how it will endure forever. Uh, I think there's uh, some recognition here of Darius that he's just one among many earthly kings. But God's kingdom transcends all of that. That he conquers the Babylonians, someone's going to come and conquer him, and that's going to happen over and over and over and over again. Kings are going to rise and fall, but there's one kingdom that rules forever. And he states that right there. His kingdom cannot be destroyed. Pretty cool uh, recognition of a, a pagan king. Uh, so anyway, uh, the theological point, try to summarize it, God rules in the kingdom of men, and the rule of the living God transcends the rise and fall of earthly nations. The living God deserves our faithfulness and worship because of his ultimate rule. And you see that exemplified in Daniel. We've talked about this before, that uh, he exemplifies how we should act, but the reason he acts in certain ways is because of what he believes. It's not just some external conformity to a list of rules. Like, no one was telling Daniel, you better pray three times a day or you're not holy. There was, you know, that wasn't a deal. It was, I need to pray to God because he's the one in control of my life. And there wasn't an external standard he's trying to apply. It was, it was worshiping the one that deserved it. You know, I think that's the key connection. So a uh, couple of thoughts on application here. I know we're getting really crazy here. That's a great question. That's a great question. Uh, there's not a lot of great answers to that. Um, so you can answer that question as like a timeline. So like exactly 29 days later, here's something new. Uh, another way of thinking it, uh, some commentaries will, you know, like this, this kind of like trumps the previous one, which then brings up the question, well, why couldn't he have done that before? Um, there's not a lot of great answers to that, but um, I could give you some books to read. That'd probably be, that'd probably be my, my answer at the moment. Um, there's some good commentaries. That's the thing when you start studying the Bible. There's, there's spending time just reading the text, which I think where we should all start. You just read, you observe, you consider it theologically, you consider what its bearing is for your life. But then there's like, you can take a step of study where it's like, okay, let's get to commentaries, which what are commentaries? It's people who have done that first step and then they're writing all their thoughts down to help you understand what they think it means. And commentaries are only as good as the people who write them. It's not like any commentary then has an authority on the text. Um, there are some commentaries that are written by you know, pretty much anyone. And so when you read a commentary, you're trying to think, like, what are their theological positions? What are their, you know, here's a spicy word, their hermeneutical presuppositions? So, like, how do they even seek to interpret Daniel? Like, most modern commentaries on Daniel wouldn't take that Daniel actually wrote it. 
And so like they, they would deny the historicity that Daniel wrote it himself, which we would say that is probably what happened. Um, so uh, to say that they're probably not all conservative commentaries, especially the newer ones. Uh, and you can kind of track how that happens as like modernism comes into academia in like the 18, 1900s. But that's not for this discussion. But so uh, I could... I could direct you to some good commentaries, but even then you need to be discerning, I guess I would say. So. <laughs> Seven after six. Are we going back to Belshazzar again? Yeah, so that's a great question. We will address that next week. Um, it's not The whole book of Daniel is not chronological. We are going to jump back, and he's going to start recording prophecies that he had previous to what happened in chapter six. So, yeah, you can see it in the first year of Belshazzar, and we saw Belshazzar get killed in chapter 5, so you know there's a chronology difference happening, but good observation. But we'll, we'll get back to that next week. So let me, let me get through our PowerPoint. Uh, so as we think about application, I think this chapter, more than any of the other chapters, really highlights the character of Daniel. He's had great character the whole time, but kind of going back to that verse 10... As that is a very specific attempt, um, and I'm not sure why my sheet looks different. Man, I tell you, the guy who makes these sheets and these PowerPoints, if I can get into his mind, it'd make this a lot easier. Uh, I have on my, it's on your sheets, right? Verse 10, faithfulness. I don't know why that's not, I guess it is up there. Man, life's rough, guys. Yeah, so I think verse 10 really highlights and wants you to focus on the faithfulness of Daniel. And more than any other chapter, I think the, a, a correct application here would be to have a longevity of faithfulness like him. Uh, you could also look at Darius here, and I said we were going to come back to this. How does Darius know what he knows about Daniel's God? And you could look at verse 16 and 20 where he makes statements, theological statements. And again, it's, it's kind of like a subtle way of highlighting Daniel's character again. I think from the moment Darius is there, Daniel's witnessing to this guy. As like an 85-year-old, he's telling this guy everything he knows about Jehovah. And I think Darius has picked some of it up. I don't think he's got all of it. But I, you know, how does he know, hey, your God will deliver you? Like, How does he have any perspective of that? Well, he's probably heard some of the stories that we've looked at. Daniel's probably testified to him. And so it kind of goes back a couple of weeks where God will use specific people to work in other people's lives. And here's a really old Daniel, and it's still happening. God is working through him. He is a consistent testimony to the unbelievers in his life. Um, so, and then uh, looking again at the very end of that, what does Darius state about God? What is he learning about God? What becomes the, the theology that we're focusing on? We are to fear God. We've talked about that with our affections going back to the first week, I think. He's the living God. That's a new one. He's alive. He's real. He's genuine. You think back to chapter 5. He's not like the gods of gold and silver and wood. He's real. There's a reason we worship him. Because he's living. 
the repetition of his kingdom, his dominion. We've seen that over and over and over. He is the one in control. And we've seen this again, delivers and rescues. He will deliver those who trust in him. Now, even if Daniel got thrown into that lion's den and Daniel got devoured, realize that he would still have been delivered the moment he would have been eaten by those lions, he would have been in the presence of the living God. And that's just as true of Daniel as it is true for us. And we know that even more surely through Christ. It's like all of those theological things about God are absolutely true for us. And so that kind of goes back to the theological point that we should uh, have faithfulness and worship to him because of who he is. Um, So practicality of God's sovereign reign from chapter 6 as we wrap up here. Uh, I think this gives us a motivation towards faithfulness, reminding us who God is, and and seeing the example of Daniel should give us some fervency to keep being faithful. It's like, man, when you're, when, you know, I've I've gone through some sickness this week, and you can't breathe out of your nose, you're trying to sleep, it's like two in the morning, like, ah, you know, you can't breathe, it's like, man, why is my life like this? And, you know, there's, there's better things ahead for us. We have a God in control of everything, and there's a lot of little sticky reasons in life to just not be faithful. And a story like this motivates us to remain faithful. I would love to be 85 and have a testimony like that. Um, Yeah. Uh, It gives us motivation to worship, recognizing who this God is. He's alive. He delivers. He's in control. He is the ruler in the kingdom of men. Why would we worship other people or other things? Like, this is the guy. Like, here he is. Uh, So I think it motivates us to worship him. And then I think there's a practical step to meditating on these truths. Because meditating on the truth of who God is helps us cultivate the affections that we should have towards the Lord. And so my, my main encouragement of this story, um, I, w- I would go b- read that decree from Darius and just let it sink into your soul. And then go read chapter 7. <laughs> and you'll see this prophecy of these other kingdoms that are going to come and conquer these kingdoms on the earth and this kingdom and this kingdom, but then God's kingdom is going to come and it's going to, it's going to last forever. And it just, I think meditating on these truths stirs our affections to worship the Lord the way he deserves. Um, so that caps uh, the first six chapters of narrative. Uh, next week we'll start into the prophecies, which we'll get uh, probably more funky than, you know, if you, like, yeah, I know you're already like, this guy's nuts, you know, but wait until next week. Um, so thank you guys, and uh, we'll break up and pray for the next uh, 20, 30 minutes. And uh, yeah, see you next week.